Well, good morning to the Sunday School class of the Round Tables. The uh, change in design this morning is no indication of an altercation of method here. Uh, This is just to avoid setting up and tearing down a couple extra needless times uh, before we have our meal after Sunday school. So welcome. Uh, uh, I will open us in prayer, and then we will take off on Deuteronomy. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you again for this time of theological training when we can come and learn your word so that we might grow in our faith and our understanding, that we might grow in our fear and obedience to you. We pray that you would bless this time as we all learn together what your word has for not only people long ago, but for us now, and this word that will endure for an eternity. We pray that you would prepare us for living well before you And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I will uh, quasi-apologize, but not really, for uh, continuing on in Deuteronomy. This is where we were during the summer. We made it up to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22. But it would do all of us, including myself, plenty of good to do a little bit of review along the way. So if you were able to grab a handout, uh, there were some at any of the doors on your way in. Uh, I have some notes there that might make it a little bit more helpful, but then again, maybe not. So to briefly review, Deuteronomy is Moses' effort to explain the Torah. Torah is usually translated law, but I think unhelpfully translated law. It would probably be better to keep a translation something along the lines of instruction uh, or even teaching. The verb, so Torah is a noun, the verb from which it is, uh, comes from means to teach uh, rather than to give law. So uh, the book of Deuteronomy as well as uh, the whole first five chapters of the Bible are simply meant to provide us with wisdom, what we talked about a little bit this morning, the whole counsel of God, how to live well in God's world. Deuteronomy is the book in which Moses, after 40 years of reflecting on God's revelation at Sinai, and after living for 40 years as a victim of Israel's rebellion and partner in receiving God's judgment, Moses is about to die. This is his last will and testament for the people of Israel. If you were about to die, what would you want people you were leaving behind to remember? That's what Deuteronomy is for Moses. So he is trying to teach Israel the way they ought to live based on their experiences of God. Moses is functioning as a pastor of the people, and his primary role is to teach God's people And he applies for them God's works and words to their present condition. The first three chapters of Deuteronomy is Moses' overview of what God has done for Israel in the past. He begins at Sinai and he ends at the Promised Land on the Jordan River, well, technically on the east side of the Jordan River, right before Israel enters into the land. This three chapters of uh, history lesson or historical review is very important because what that, those three chapters do is it lays the uh, groundwork for establishing Israel's character and for establishing God's character as they live together in covenant fellowship. What are the people of Israel like? Moses spares no words in telling Israel what Israel is like. He also spares no words in telling them what God is like. That's what those three chapters are primarily about. Two patterns appear. The first pattern is that when people rebel, God punishes them, but does not revoke his promises that he gave to the patriarch. So Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 and 38 is a great example of that. 
I love to hear all of the page turning. Deuteronomy 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. That will be a nice contrast to what we have this morning in chapter 5. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give their fathers, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. And then Moses adds, Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, and said, You shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter it. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So even though the generation who rebelled against the Lord is excluded from the blessings of the Lord, the promises remain intact, and the next generation will go in and take the land. That shows a pattern of Israel's behavior and of the Lord's behavior as well. That's pattern number one. Pattern number two. When the people obey the Lord in faith, he blesses them with unimaginable success in all that they do. Chapter 2, verses 30, and 30, 30 to 34. Chapter 2, starting in verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as it is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. The same thing happens in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, when Og, the king of Bashan, the great giant king, came out to battle Israel. They obeyed the Lord's command to fight in faith. They did, and they were so successful that the text says in Numbers, we did not lose a single man of everyone who fought. Uh, So the Lord blesses them tremendously when they obey in faith. Chapter 4. So that's chapter 1 through 3. Chapter 4 is Moses' application of the history lesson. Because God saved them, they should devote themselves to him through listening to his laws and obeying him. This is the gospel according to Moses. God already saved his people. Their response of faith is to walk in the way of the Lord. That is the pattern of Deuteronomy, and not coincidentally the pattern of the New Testament is the Lord has saved his people, walk in the way of the Lord. Deuteronomy 5 begins with Moses' exhortation to the people to be, uh, again, to hear and to do all that God commands them. Chapter 5, verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Deuteronomy 5 is the story of Israel hearing God speak, and that was the beginning of their instruction. But Deuteronomy 5 is not God speaking. Exodus chapter 20 is God speaking. Deuteronomy 5 is Moses' memorized resuscitation of Exodus 20. And he gives a little bit of his commentary along the way. Uh, One of the things we noticed when we went through it during the summer was that there are some differences between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The two tablets that Moses brings down from the mountain are almost certainly locked in the ark. He doesn't have access to them. They're in the tabernacle. Not even Moses goes into the tabernacle, uncovers the lid on the ark, and pulls him out. You saw what happened in Indiana Jones. You don't do that. (laughs) So Moses is giving his 40-year reflection on those laws. And he delves into the content of those statutes and judgments uh, by reciting the Ten Commandments. That leaves us now to Deuteronomy 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 22. 
And this is where we will pick up for the summer. These words, that is a reference to the Ten Commandments Moses just gave in chapter 5, verses 6 to 21. So that's a reference to the Big Ten. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. This verse has three actions on the Lord's part. The Lord spoke. The Lord wrote those words on two tablets. And he gave them to Moses. Now I'm going to quickly deal with the two tablets because they disappear. They're a minor footnote in the text, but they are important. Likely, there were two tablets that each contained a full copy of the Ten Commandments. They almost certainly weren't half and half. The reason for that is, in the ancient Near East, when a king made a covenant or a treaty with another king, there were two copies of it made. One copy stayed in the king's throne room, the reigning king, the king who made a treaty with a lesser king. One copy stayed in that king's throne room as a reminder to him of his obligations to his vassal or the lesser king. The other copy went into the temple of the kingdom that was just overtaken by the king. That is because the gods were responsible for making sure or for enacting the punishments if the vassal king rebelled against the great king. So the one copy goes in the great king's uh, royal hall. The other copy goes in the temple of the subjugated people. For Israel, that's one in the same place. The Lord's royal hall is the Holy of Holies. Israel's temple is the Holy of Holies. But they still have the two copies. One of the things that that ought to teach us is the nearness of God to his people. Those two copies are not split in separate places. The Lord is with his people, and they cannot escape him. Nor would they want to if they were wise. So, that deals a little bit with the Lord's presence. But what receives the most detail in the text is the voice and the speaking of the Lord. Back to verse 22. These are the words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of of the fire, the cloud, the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. The reason that this receives the most attention is because it's not the tablets, and it's not primarily the content of the words, but the voice and the natural phenomenon that uh, caused Israel to react the way they did to the voice of the Lord. And that's brought up in verse 23 and 24. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. So they react to the Lord's speaking by coming to Moses and acknowledging what had just happened at Sinai. God spoke, and amazingly, we lived, which is an added statement of amazement. We, we survived the experience. Can you believe that? The reason they are amazed by that is because the assumption of the day was that you, no one, could survive an encounter with a divine being whether it be Israel's God or whether it be some other people thinking about their gods. Flip back to Exodus 33, verse 18, and we will see the Lord himself make the exact same claim. Exodus 33, Israel has just rebelled against the Lord with a golden calf. Moses has interceded with the Lord. Please don't destroy the people. And the Lord says, fine, but I won't go with you. And Moses says, if you won't go with us, don't send me. 
The Lord says, okay, fine, I will grant you that request because I know you. And then Moses goes a step further, please show me your glory. And here we are in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 5, we have something very similar I think this is a passage we're familiar with, but good to draw out in this context. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to... To another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost or undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's exclamation there is, woe is me, is he fears for his life. Uh, this, this is not a, oh, that's cool. Um, I should be in awe. No, it's, I'm going to die. And the Lord comes and responds to him uh, with, with the angel and the coal and says, no, your sins are forgiven. You can stand before me. Even John almost... Uh, Felt, even John definitely did feel his mortality uh, when he faced the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, which is supposed to combine Exodus 33 and Isaiah 8 and the whole ideal of the lethality of God's presence. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, he had just finished uh, describing the vision he had of Jesus. And then he gives us his reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Not because he was simply giving him honor um, as though dead. Uh, all his life was kind of sucked out of him uh, for fear. But Jesus responds to him graciously as well. The lethality of God's presence, now back in Deuteronomy, is symbolized by the mountain burning with fire and smoke and thick cloud and darkness all around. All of those ideas, uh, all of those phenomena are supposed to communicate the idea of the lethal danger surrounding God's presence. And so the Israelites respond to Moses and say, we heard God speak and we're still alive, uh, as if they are rightly amazed by it. Now we unfortunately take for granted what amazed the Israelites. But I'm willing to bet that if we encountered the majesty and the power of God, truly, we would no doubt sense our own mortality. Um, that was the experience of the Israelites. And they fixate on the danger and the expectation that they ought to have died. Verses 25 and 26. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more. We shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fires we have and still lived? Now one might ask, what, why would they think they would die if they hear God speak anymore when they just survived the experience? Right? They heard God speak. They admitted we survived it. I mean, look at the end of verse 24 and the beginning of verse 25 and see if it doesn't feel a little odd to you. Uh, we, this day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? Um, doesn't that just seem a little odd that they would put those two things right next to each other? Um, but I think the logic goes the other way. 
if God is for his people and the fact that he is was just proven by the fact that they survived this experience, why would God want his people to continue to live in such a precarious spot? Why would he want to put his people in the danger of death any longer? Why wouldn't he release them from that danger? Because the assumption is, if they continue to hear God speak, verse 25, and if they continue to see this great fire, the great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we will die. Um, They saw the fire and the cloud at a distance. Safe distances, maybe, but at a distance. The voice of God projected from the mountain to them. They directly experienced the voice. And what they're doing here is they're saying, we heard the voice out of the midst of the fire. How do we know that that's not going to creep down out of the mountain along with the voice that's coming from it? And consume us. There's a tight connection as well between hearing the voice of the Lord and the Lord being there as well. So they are driven by fear, and their fear asks, uh, leads them to ask a request of Moses in verse 27. You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. When I first read this, the first thing that came to mind was a regular experience at home. Jaden is still young enough. I can play pretty good hide-and-go-seek with him. So I just kind of stand behind a door, and he'll run into a room and not know I'm behind the door, and just kind of, yeah, I'm there. Um, Theo is at the age, though, where he is much more comfortable sending Lydia or Jaden to find me than he is in coming. I don't want to go in there. You go find him, <laughs> right? Um, we're afraid. I'm afraid. You go find him. Uh, that's what this felt like to me when I first read it. The Israelites are saying, no, no, we're afraid. We're going to die. You go, Moses. Um, as in, you go up there and you risk death. We will stay down here at a safe distance. Um, is that what is happening? Uh, is this an act of cowardice? Is there fear unfounded or misplaced? Or is there something else going on? And I think one of the reasons that question occurred to me is because our culture prioritizes, or values, I should maybe say, um, bravery and courage. Uh, Our culture has embraced those values all the way since Plato. Uh, Plato has made bravery and courage ideals of the uh, Roman man anyway, and of any man, therefore, in his mind. Is Israel simply lacking courage here? And I think, typically, American Christians, immersed in that culture as we are, tend to pick up the same values. We tend to prize those things as well. And so when we come to the New Testament, we are keen to pick up on things like Ephesians 3. Uh, Just a couple passages we'll look at here. Ephesians 3 and then one in Hebrews and we'll skip the second one in Hebrews. Now, but Ephesians 3, verses 11 and 12. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized for realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We could also look at Hebrews chapter 4, and I would maybe uh, find it worth putting a finger here because we'll come back to Hebrews 4 a little bit later on. Hebrews 4 verse 16 Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
So here there is fear on the part of the Israelites, and we as American Christians, I think, often value the idea of bold confidence going before the Lord. Uh, is this not what Christianity uh, has? But we ought to be cautious of criticizing them for what we might call their lack of boldness or confidence. The fact is, boldness is a byproduct of spirit-produced hope. Boldness is not an antonym of fear. Boldness and fear work together. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, this is, you don't need to turn there if you don't want to, I can just read it, but this is the fact that boldness comes out of a particular kind of hope. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Confidence and boldness comes out of a hope. It lies beside righteous fear, not in place of it. What's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 5 is uh, we're given the story of that in Exodus 20, and we learn some things that I think that are pretty helpful. So if we go back to Exodus 20, we'll learn what the Lord thinks about this a little bit or Moses at least tells the Israelites what they are to think about it. Exodus 20, verses 18 and following. So the Ten Commandments just happened. They just heard the voice of the Lord speaking in Exodus 20. Moses now is with the people. Exodus 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking... The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you. Do not fear. He's come that you might fear. Did you catch that? Do not be afraid. He's come to test you so that you might fear him. Boldness is not the antidote to righteous fear. They work together in a necessary way. There is a fear the Israelites are supposed to forsake, and there is a fear that Israel is supposed to grow in. The fear they are to forsake is that the Lord designs to destroy them. That has been their fear throughout their journeying, hasn't it? Right. So when they uh, are at the border of the promised land, at Kadesh Barnea, the Lord says, go up, take possession of the land. No, we're not going to do that. The Lord sent us out of Egypt to destroy us all. No, that's your own history tells you that's not true. And so when we come to Exodus 20, uh, they learn before that the fact that they are supposed to forsake the fear that the Lord is trying to destroy them. And in place, uh, we might also say they are supposed to forsake the fear that there's no opportunity for repentance or for faithfulness. But there is a fear Israel is supposed to have. It is a fear of God's holy, righteous, and awesome power and just condemnation in light of his commandments. So I have a little uh, circle for you here. It's also on the back of your handouts where I gave you a bunch of scripture references along uh, with it. What I have done here uh, is I have tried to illustrate by this diagram the way experience, uh, the way fear and boldness works in the experience of the life of a believer. Fear motivates and is guided by faith. We can think of Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Uh, we could also look at Exodus 20.20. 20. Uh, he has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you. That fear is supposed to lead us into faithful obedience. 
faithfulness, we might say. Philippians 2, chapter 12, uh, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, let's go there because it, it gives us a little bit more than that. And that's all I'm prepared to give at the moment. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. That's faith and faithfulness. Motivated by fear. So on, on the one hand. We have fear. That is supposed to. Actuate our faith. To living a particular way. But living that particular way. Gives rise in us. To a particular boldness. And hope that we have. When we come to meet God. For example, well, we can go to 1 John 5. Our assurance of our place before God based on a one measure of our faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, 1 John 5, just the first two verses of it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So our confidence that we are the Lord's and that we have access to him as a loving father grows as we love the brothers and sisters and as we grow in our love for God himself. So our boldness is not an antidote to fear. It is a byproduct of fearful and faithful obedience. So fear and boldness in the life of the believer lie side by side. They are not antonyms to one another. Uh, I will, as we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 here, I'll swing by Galatians 5, verse 6, and quickly read that to you. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love does count for something. Circumcision doesn't, uncircumcision doesn't. But faith working through love counts for something. And that ought to give us uh, boldness as we come to the Lord as well. So Israel here fears the Lord. Uh, we'll look at the next two verses and then we'll take... Uh, a short pause. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28. They just asked Moses to intercede. Moses, uh, so the, the people speak, now the Lord speaks. I'm sorry, Moses speaks, but he, he gives them the word that the Lord had given them. When the Lord heard your words, when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people, which they have spoken to you, they are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. We cannot approach God without an intercessor. Even Israel was aware of that, which takes us back to Hebrews 4. I said we'd come back to it. Here we are at Hebrews 4. If I can find it again. We read verse 16, but now let's look at verses 14 and 15. The context for that boldness that we have in chapters in verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, which is, because we have an intercessor on our behalf, let us draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. The boldness we have should be greater than the boldness the Israelites have. Moses is not such a great high priest, and Aaron was not such a great high priest. He was a high priest, and so they brought their sacrifices to the temple where God was. But the boldness we have should be of a different stripe. So if we feel a little odd in the way they respond to Moses, keep in mind God has done more for us than he did for them. On the other hand, our fear that we ought to have of the Lord ought to be even greater than the Israelites' fear as well. Not only ought we to have the sort of fear they had, our fear ought to increase as the author of Hebrews warns us in chapter 2, Verses 1 and 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Israelites responded in fear. Our fear ought to exceed the fear of the Israelites in the same way. Our boldness ought to exceed the boldness of the Israelites. So the things we approach God for should be awe-inspiring if an ancient Israelite could look forward to our time. On the other hand, they should see our fear and be put to shame by how poorly they tended to fear the Lord. This is one of the rare occasions when Israel gets the point. Um, And so their response is approved by the Lord. And uh, he vindicated their fear by appointing Moses as an intercessor. We'll look at that in just a second. But thoughts or questions up through what we've covered so far? Right. So the the question is, uh, what would have happened if Israel would have said they did want to go up to the mountain and keep hearing the words? Um, I'm grateful that I don't know. (laughs) Um, I, I would suspect the Lord would probably not have granted their request and probably rebuked them. At this point uh, in, in Exodus 18 or 19, before Exodus 20, when they hear the words, The Lord basically has Moses fence off the mountain so that they cannot approach because if they do, they will die. And so I think part of what's happening here is they're afraid of that bleeding out to them. And so Moses says, go home to your tents. Um, Don't stay here at the foot of the mountain. And the Lord Lord is actually the one who told Moses to command them that. And so uh, he is, the Lord is pleased uh, that the people responded this way and In a lot of ways, it will work out for their benefit, and we'll see why uh, as we keep going in Deuteronomy, why this was to their benefit. Good question. Anything else? Um, As I understand, Ray, when Captain Ray and Israelites go into the promised land, it's a huge group of people like my age and younger, and then it's Caleb and Jacob are the only people who are old. I'm just telling Yeah. Um, So the age of the Israelites at this time, there's a little bit of a challenge there. It was all of the Israelites 20 years old and 20 years and over who perished from the camp. This is 40 years later. So there could have been people up to 60. I don't think you want to claim that. (laughs) Um, So there, 
Joshua and Caleb stand out, though, because they almost certainly were a minimum of 80. Uh, Joshua, we know, was older, and Caleb was no young man either. By the time Joshua is done, uh, Caleb, I think, claims to be like 110 when he finally dies, and so they're old when they enter the Promised Land. All of the other Israelites were likely 60 and younger. Another little bit to tickle your mind and frustrate you is that it never talks about the women perishing from the camp. It was the fighting men who rebelled and the fighting men who were punished. We don't know about their wives. How many 80-year-old grandmas were there that said, listen to Joshua? Um, The text doesn't say. That's not part of the concern of the text. But when we try to piece together what the history might have been, worth keeping in mind. Anything else? Okay, we'll forge ahead then. Verse 28, God responds, He hears the people. The Lord heard your words, and he said to me, again, like we saw in chapter 2, the Lord heard and was angered. Here he says, they're right in all they've spoken. Uh, A rare occasion Israel gets it right. Worth noting that the Lord hears what the people speak just as much as the people are supposed to hear what God speaks. This is a relationship, a covenant relationship in which the Lord is near to his people, pays attention to what they say, as he desires they pay attention to what he would say. The people are dismissed in verse 30, but then in verse 31, what of Moses? The Lord says, but you stand here by me And I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. Moses should have fear in going up the mountain, but he should have boldness in doing it as well. He is commanded by the Lord to do it. The people are released from the obligation of hearing the voice of the Lord. Moses is not. He is commanded to enter into it, and enter into it he does. Moses stays so that the Lord might teach him the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you are to teach them. So the Lord is equipping Moses to become a teacher of Israel. And so Moses picks up on that, and he understands that to be his primary role. So if we went back to chapter 4, verse 1, where Moses begins to give the application of the history lesson, Deuteronomy 4, 1, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them. So Moses here is giving his defense of his status of Israel's teacher. We've seen places where the Apostle Paul gives his defense as an apostle. Look, Jesus appeared to me, and he taught me these things. I've been confirmed by the apostles in Jerusalem. I'm a legitimate apostle. Here Moses is basically doing the same thing. Remember, you asked for me, and remember, the Lord commanded me to go and hear from him as well. So, Uh, There are two points to this historical reflection that Moses gives before he breaks forth on his commentary. So in chapter 5, the Lord speaks. In chapter 6 and following, Moses gives his commentary on what the Lord spoke to them, and he bases it on the sorts of things that the Lord told him in private conversation. A couple things to notice. First, Israel asks Moses, to become their intercessor, and they promise that they will follow Moses' teaching. We may have missed that because we snuck by it fairly quickly in verse 27. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say to you. You speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it and we will do it. So Israel asks for this, and the Lord invests Moses with the authority of the office, and he equips him with the knowledge that he might be a good teacher. 
Like any good cult, Moses received his instruction in private. And that's a fact. Moses did not have the company of the Israelites to hear what he was receiving. And he passed on what he claims he heard. Unlike any cult, there were physical manifestations that proved to all of the people that Moses was indeed speaking with the Lord. Just for time, we'll go back to Exodus 34. Verses 29 and following. Moses did not spend all his time up on the mountain. What Moses received on the mountain appears to me to be the instructions for the tabernacle. You'll remember he went up the mountain, the Lord gave him the tablets, and then says, Go down, your people are rebelling, Moses. Moses goes down, sees they built the golden calf, shatters the tablets, goes back up, intercedes with the Lord, please don't forsake us. The Lord says, okay, I won't forsake you. After giving all the instructions for the tabernacle, which is why it's such a, a stab in the heart of God, we might say, he just told the people how they can live with him, and the first thing they do is make an idol. Moses goes back up, receives tablets, comes back down, The typical way of communicating between the Lord and Moses, though, we have in Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, And Aaron and all the elders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him. Notice that the prepositions changed from coming off the mountain to going in and out. Likely that means the tabernacle of testimony, which we have in some other places as well. So there is a tent of meeting that is set up in Exodus 33 where Moses would go in, uh, he would speak with the Lord, and then he would come out and he uh, would engage with the Lord that way. Whether or not all of this happened on the mount or in the tabernacle, I don't know for sure. The point I'm trying to drive at here is that all of the people knew that the Lord was speaking with Moses. His face shone. And he communicated those words to the people of God. And so they knew what they were getting was the Lord's word. Moses again views his role as a teacher and Israel as learners. And so Moses not only recites the laws that the Lord gave, he is also the divinely commissioned interpreter of those words. So here's what the Lord has said. Here's my commentary on those words And that becomes equally binding with the words themselves. One way you could see the difference, for example, Exodus 20 to 23 is often called the Book of the Covenant. That's what I understand Moses to have received on the mountain. Deuteronomy is Moses' commentary over Exodus 20 to 23 and his application of those laws. And so some of the commandments will overlap, Some of them will be a little bit different because Israel is approaching a new place. Uh, The way Israel lives in the wilderness necessarily is a little bit different than the way they will live when they enter the land. And you will notice the way Moses emphasizes the commandments and their relationship to the land they are entering. The end of verse 30. uh, Let's read verse 31. 
And we'll go into verses 32 and 33 here as well. But you stand here uh, by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land I am giving them to possess. Verse 32, you shall be careful. That's the end of the Lord speaking. Now Moses speaks as his own words. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Moses here adds that they are to stick to the particulars. You shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you. They shall not deviate from it. Uh, do not turn to the right hand or to the left. The Lord here expresses his commands as a way of living, a pathway in which the people are to walk and they are not to fall off of that pathway one way or the other. There is a trajectory their lives are to have. The commandments of the Lord are not something that they do in addition to the rest of their lives or uh, even as a way of accomplishing certain tasks in their lives. Their lives are to be framed by a pattern of thinking given in the wisdom of Torah. They are to, to have a trajectory to their lives, we might say. And Moses stresses there are three reasons for doing this. Verse 33 that you may live, that it may go well with you, which means you may be prosperous in the land you are going, and so that you may live long in the land, that you will perpetuate yourselves and your offspring in the land you are going. So, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks in the law of the Lord. That's what Moses is saying right here in Deuteronomy 1. If you want to know the pathway of blessing, Pay attention to all that I'm teaching you, and these blessings will fall to you. Uh, just for time, I'm going to pause there today. Thoughts or questions over the rest of what we've covered so far? All right, very good. We will pick up with Deuteronomy 6, the famed Deuteronomy 6, next week. Enjoy your fellowship together.